Our passage this morning uh, is taken from uh, the book of Exodus. We've been looking at uh, this incredible story uh, in the second book of the Old Testament. Uh, And as you turn there, I want you to think about uh, identity-shaping moments in your life, because life is full of uh, identity-shaping moments, the moments that uh, really define us and shape us into who we are. Uh, I can think of, think back to the day in which I was married, and uh, that was certainly an identity-shaping moment for me. After I was married, I I took on the title of husband. Uh, When we had our first kid, that was certainly an identity-shaping moment. I took on the title of father for the first time. When I was ordained as a minister, I took on the title of pastor uh, for the first time. And so all those are moments in my life that shaped me into who I am. And our lives are full, are full of those sorts of things. Sometimes they're really good things. Uh, other times they're harsh things. They're difficult things. Maybe it was a, a harsh and careless word spoken by someone that hurt you and shaped you in some way into which you are today. And so life is full of these moments, both good uh, and bad. But what you also recognize is that these moments can happen in the life of a community as well. They can happen corporately. Uh, I know it's hard to think about the month of July in the middle of February, but every July we celebrate the 4th of July, and that's, uh, that's where we celebrate a, an event within a community. We recall our independence and our freedom, and we reinforce our identity uh, as a community, as a country, based on this idea of freedom. Well, when you come to the Old Testament, you come to the book of Exodus, And you see a very powerful identity-shaping moment for a community of people that is also centered around the idea of freedom. Because what the Old Testament does is it tells the story of a family that grew into a great nation. However, when the book of Exodus opens up, this great nation is not in a good place. They had become enslaved to the Egyptian nation. And what we're going to read this morning is the climax of their story, the climax of their rescue, and we'll see how it becomes for them an identity-shaping moment that forever alters who they are as people. And I think one of the things that we'll learn as we look at their story is this, that as they learned more about the identity of God who rescued them, they discovered more about who they were as people. And I think that's a paradigm for all of us, that the identity of God shapes the identity of His people. It shapes who we are. And so our passage this morning uh, is taken from Exodus chapter 14, and I'm going to be reading from verses 21 uh, through the end of that chapter through verse 31. This is God's Word. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. 
And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that God used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the privilege of worship. Thanks so much for your word that speaks to us. And so we pray that as we reflect on your word now, that this ancient story found in the book of Exodus, that it would not just be a story that happened in time and space and history, but it would be reflective to us of the kind of God you are and the kind of people we are. Father, we hunger and thirst for your voice. We need it. So we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. And it's in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All throughout this story, and this is the, I think, the third week that we've been looking at this Exodus story in its different chapters, uh, all throughout the story, the identity of God is being revealed to those that are reading and to those, of course, that experience this story in the moment in which it happened. It's as if the curtains of God are being opened and the, the character of God is on display for us to see and for everyone else to see as well. And one of the first things that we see this morning is, is a reinforcement of something that we saw last week about the character of God. And we see here in this passage very clearly the judgment of God. If you were with us last week, you'll remember uh, that we saw the judgment of God clearly on display in the Exodus story. We saw that, that one of the main characters in this story was, was a man named Pharaoh, who was the head of the Egyptian empire. One of the things that we noted is that, that Pharaoh had set himself up as a false god at the head of a false religion. And when he was confronted by the real god through the messenger of, of Moses and Aaron, he refused to humble himself. He refused to humble himself before the true God. He refused to do what the true God was clearly commanding him to do. And so what does God do? He, he sends these ten plagues that, that in many ways unleashed his will and unleashed his fury. And we saw how those ten plagues would have had serious consequences uh, for not just Pharaoh, but for all of the Egyptian people. We saw that the source of their water, the, the Nile River, which was the source of their fertility, uh, fertility uh, was interrupted through the plague of blood that lasted for seven days. 
We saw that their, their agriculture uh, would have been destroyed, particularly by the plague of hail and the plague of locust. And we saw that their livestock would have also been affected by the plague of hail and by the plague of diseases that you read about in the book of Exodus. And so, so what we realize is their civilization is being systematically dismantled because their leader, Pharaoh, was clinging to pride in the face of the real God. They refused to humble themselves before God, and so they faced his judgment. But even after all this, even after all of these plagues and all of these difficulties that came upon them, uh, the Egyptians still had one thing that was really going for them. And that one thing was that they were still the most superior military force in the ancient world. Their military technology was better than any of the the nations that were around them. And yet we see in our story this morning that this superior military force is swallowed up in an instant by the Red Sea. Because this army, as powerful as it is, This army is no match for the power of creation that is directed by the Creator, the God Most High. And so we see that that, that, that this God of judgment is on display. We even learn that part of God's character, part of His perfect character, is to judge. And one of the things that we noticed last week is that's really hard for us in our kind of modern sensibilities to come to terms with, especially here in American Christianity. We don't preach a whole lot of sermons on the judgment of God. We don't like to, to talk a whole lot about the judgment of God. But really, when it comes to that, we hold those positions inconsistently, right? Think about how we function as a culture. Someone commits a crime, they get arrested, they go before a judge. And what does that judge do? That judge makes a judgment. They make a decision based on something that has happened. Now, you and I don't look at those judges and say, why do they have to be so judgmental? Why does that judge, why, why is that judge so judgy? Why can't they just be more compassionate and understanding? We never say those things. Why? Because we've brought them in to be judges. That is their job, to make judgments and to make rulings. That's why we either bring them in or elect them to do that job. Well, the truth of the Scriptures is that that is part of God's job, too. That He, part of His character is to bring an account the deeds of men. And so what we see here is that the judgment of God against pride is clearly on display throughout this entire story. But that's not all we see in this story. We see another part of God's character in that we see the special, powerful grace of God in action in this story as well. Verse 29, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. What we read in the story is that Moses, who is the leader of this Israelite nation, is instructed to raise his hands over the Red Sea, and when he does that, God acts in miraculous power to deliver his people. God suspends 
the normal course of creation. Actually, what he does is he marshals the creative power to miraculously deliver his people from a situation that it would have been almost certain death. If you go to the next chapter, which you, you ought to do sometime today, go and read Exodus chapter 15. Because what you read in Exodus 15 is the people's response to God's rescue. And what they do is, is they break out into song. Many people believe it's one of the first uh, songs or psalms that are recorded for us in the Scriptures. And as you look at this song, what you get a sense of is that this story gave God's people a very powerful identity. Because as God's identity was revealed, it shaped the identity of His people as well. The song proclaims that God is a God of salvation. Verse 2 says this, The Lord is my strength. In my song, and he has become my salvation. You can see the, the personal and intimate language that these people were singing. The song proclaims that, that God fights for his people. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You get a sense that God is powerful. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The song sings about how God has the power over the creative world at his disposal. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The song proclaims that God is alone in his uniqueness. It says in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord? among the gods. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? But finally, and perhaps the most beautiful part of this song, is that it expresses that God is a God of love, a God of redemption, and a God of grace. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by the strength of your holy abode. You see, what they realized is that God had uniquely chosen them, He loved them, He defended them, and He delivered them, all because of His special and unique grace. And so what that meant for them was this, that they as a people group were now to divine, define themselves by God's work on their behalf. And what that tells us is that only in recognizing God's identity do we ultimately recognize our own. Only in recognizing God's work on our behalf do we truly come to terms with who we are as people, people who have been rescued by the grace of God. But what I think is really important that we especially see in this passage and this is the last thing, is, that, to, is that, that what this shows us is to understand the context in which our rescue happens, to understand the occasion for the grace of God, and what we see in this passage, that the occasion for the grace of God is this, our helplessness. 
The occasion for God's grace is our helplessness. If you read the full narrative, you'll discover that God in this story is almost acting like a director who is setting up the occasion for this deliverance to happen. It says in in chapter 13, verse 18, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And so if you read the full story, you get this sense, that once God's people left Egypt, they were led by God physically. There was a There was a a cloud that they were to follow, a pillar of fire uh, by night that they were to follow. And that pillar did not lead them the shortest way. There's an interesting note about the Philistines and not being uh, ready to battle the Philistines. And so God takes them, he leads them through this pillar of fire a long way around to the front of the Red Sea. And that's where the people encamp. They're deposited in front of the Red Sea. It's not like they'd gotten lost or they'd somehow wandered to this point. We get the sense that God directly led them to this place. This is where he exactly wanted them to be. And as they're encamped along the Red Sea, they hear what had to be one of the most horrifying sounds that they could possibly hear because they hear the Egyptian army with 600 chariots pursuing after them. The passage tells us that they were caught up in all sorts of fear and panic. You can understand why they would feel that way, because the Red Sea is on one side, and the most powerful military force is on the other side, and they are trapped right in the middle of these two forces. And God, it seems, has led them right into this trap. One of the commentators said this, it was as if God led them into a blind alley with walls on both sides and they couldn't go backwards. They were caught between the unconquerable army and an impassable sea. So the question we're left with, and they of course were left with as well, why would God do this? Why would God lead us to this place? They begin to to turn on Moses. They say to Moses, why did you lead us into this wilderness just so we could be killed out here? Why would God do this? Why would he lead them this way? And so Moses says to the people this. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And and don't miss this. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You have only to be silent. And so the occasion for God's grace in this salvation becomes the people's helplessness. God brought them to the most helpless and hopeless situation so that he could demonstrate the power of his salvation. They were completely helpless. They could have done absolutely nothing to save themselves, and they knew it. They had come to terms with that fact. Their circumstances were too great for them, and what does Moses do? He tells them to do nothing. Do nothing. But be silent, and God will act on their behalf. 
Now, being caught between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea was obviously a pretty hopeless situation. But one of the things the gospel tells us is this. It tells us that there is an even more hopeless situation in which all of us find ourselves in. The scriptures tell us that each and every one of us have sinned. That in our pride, in our hubris, just like we see in Pharaoh, in our pride and in our hubris, we have rebelled against a holy God. And because of that, each and every one of us stands before God as guilty. We stand before the judge of heaven as guilty. And our guilt has put us into a spiritually helpless situation. We stand not before a Red Sea and an invading army, but we stand before the enemies of sin and death, and we are helpless to save ourselves in front of those enemies. Now, most people are are delusional at the fact of how just helpless they are. And so we don't like to admit the truth of our hearts. We don't like to admit uh, the ugly truth of our spiritual state. And so what do we do? In that helpless situation, we try to earn our way back to God or somehow work our way out of our helpless situation. But the truth of the Scriptures is this. We are just as helpless as the Israelites were in this story. And so what the Gospel does is this. It causes us to recognize and to admit. It calls us to recognize that we are sinful, deserving of judgment. It calls us to admit that we are hopeless, that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And when we do, when we do that, our lives become the occasion for the power and grace of God made manifest in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, when we see the identity of God as our judge, we despair of our own identity. We are sinners who are helpless to save ourselves. But when we see the identity of God as one who rescues the helpless with grace, we can celebrate that we have been rescued from our helplessness. We have been chosen. We have been loved. We have been rescued from the enemies of sin and death. And so, friends, one of the most gracious things that God does for us is to show us just how helpless we are. But in that moment, He lifts our eyes to behold Jesus Christ, the instrument of our rescue. Let's pray.